A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. This episode includes discussion of violence and may not be appropriate for all listeners. A colada is about four ounces of that sweet Cuban coffee and a little stack of cups. That's basically like a full coffee cup of espresso, and then it comes with like a stack of espresso cups or plastic shot glasses. It's like the the mini Cuban coffee version of one of those like jug of Joe type things. Exactly. This is how you don't show up empty-handed, is you show up with a colada. And nobody ever turns it down. It just automatically kind of hugs you with culture. You know, it just kind of brings you in for the hug, you know? And and God forbid you ever try to drink the whole thing directly, or as uh, the late comedian Ralphie May used to say, you will see into the future. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Before we get started, big news, you guys. We're doing our first Sporkful live taping in New York since before COVID. Can't wait to get back out there. I'll be chatting with Kim Pham from Amsam and Chitra Agrawal from Brooklyn Deli. These are both up-and-coming food brands founded by Asian-American women who are working to market Asian-inspired products to a mass American audience. So what are the challenges and opportunities of that? How do you do that while keeping your flavors, quote-unquote, authentic? This is going to be a thoughtful and fun conversation, and we're going to have food samples and goodies for sale, including, yes, Sfolini and Bonza Cascatelli. In fact, Sfolini co-founder Scott Ketchum, famous from his appearances here on The Sporkful, will be there live and in person they'll probably even autograph your box of cascatelli the show is wednesday july 20th at the bell house in brooklyn get your tickets now at sporkful.com slash live okay let's get into the show Carlos Frias is the editor of the Miami Herald food section and host of an interview podcast for the Herald called La Ventanita. It's named after the little window shops that sell coffee around Miami where locals gather to chat Coffee has always been a huge part of Cuban culture. So when I visited Carlos at his home just west of downtown, that's where he began. He made me a classic Cuban coffee, walking me through the process step by step. First, you brew the coffee in a mocha pot, one of those hexagonal metal coffee makers that you put right on the stove. When the coffee starts coming out of the pot, you pour the first teaspoon of it into a cup with the sugar. And while the rest finishes brewing, you whip it together to kind of emulsify that, that sugar and then you combine that with the coffee. And that creates the crema and basically a coffee-flavored simple syrup. Now, when you have that on its own, it's heaven. You add a little bit of like evaporated milk to the equation, and it just takes it to a whole other level. I visited Carlos in 2017. Parts of this conversation were featured in an earlier episode. We talked a lot back then about his father, Fernando. Recently, I spoke with Carlos again because of a shocking, terrible development. In 2020, Fernando was murdered by a neighbor. We'll get to that later in the show. We're going to focus most of this episode on Fernando's life and the food story it inspired Carlos to tell. Fernando Frias was part of the early wave of Cuban immigrants who transformed South Florida after Fidel Castro took power in Cuba in 1959. 
Like many immigrant groups, the Cubans who came here tried to recreate the culture they loved in a new place after being forced to leave their homeland behind. Fernando was one of 11 children, raised on a farm in rural Cuba. When he was in his 20s, he moved to Havana with his brothers, and they started opening cafes and restaurants just outside the city. Pretty soon, they had several businesses in this major plaza that was at the center of this suburb of Havana called uh, Marianao. And here they were, these, these young men in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s, running businesses. They brought their parents later, all living in the city in one big house, living the moment, living kind of an American dream in Cuba, right? And then here comes the revolution. And before the end of three years, all their businesses had been nationalized. You know, uniformed military would come into your store. This exactly happened. They said, we're going to need you to close the cash register, hand us the keys, and file out. This is now the property of the state. And that's how they lost their businesses. Fernando applied for a visa to get out of Cuba, but his application was denied. So he tried to sneak off the island in a speedboat. He was caught. And he spent two years in, in one of the most brutal prisons in Cuba. His first night in jail, he heard 17 men executed. And I think back on it, it's like my dad would have been about 38 at the time. And that's, that's a hell of a thing. I can't imagine. I can put myself in his place in life, but I can't imagine what it's like to then overcome that. In prison, Fernando met a university professor who taught him English. A Chinese Cuban inmate taught him to play chess. But one day, that young man was taken by soldiers and never came back. After two years, Fernando got out of prison, but he still needed an exit visa to get out of the country. The only way to get that was to earn it by spending two more years in a labor camp. He worked in the fields, cutting sugarcane, digging latrines. Then one day... When the cook of this concentration camp got his exit visa, they looked around and said, can anybody cook? Well, anything was better than working in the field. So my dad put his hand up and he said, I, I can cook, but, uh, but I need my brother with me because he's my, he's my assistant. I've never really cooked without him. So I need my brother. So that got them off the... The out, hard labor. Out of the fields. Yeah. And into the kitchen. Out of the fields and into the kitchen. And, and and did your dad actually know how to cook? See, because they owned these restaurants and cafes, he had learned by watching and doing simple things. They had a, the, their chef at their, at their one restaurant was a Chinese Cuban guy. So he cooked this Chinese Cuban cuisine. So that's, uh, that's the bulk of his knowledge is having watched them cook and cooking at home. Up until then, the only food the prisoners ate was split peas and rice. Nothing sweet. One day, Fernando noticed that the workers in the camp had cut down four royal palm trees. And he remembered hearing stories about how, back in the 1800s, Cuban independence fighters survived on hearts of palm. So he had the workers strip the palm trees and bring him the hearts, the crunchy inner cores. He boiled them with tons of sugar and whatever spices were around, cinnamon, star anise, until it became like a syrupy pudding. And he writes down on their board. They had a little chalkboard. Like the menu of the day. In the menu of the day, he writes down on the chalkboard, chicharo and rice, split, split pea and rice, and dulce de palma frias. Freest dessert, freest palm dessert. Freest being his la your last his, name, my, his, his last name. His last name. So he, sort of, he named the dish after, after himself. himself <laughs> right? It's like such a chefy thing to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so people just line up and they're not sure what to make of it. And from the story he tells, uh, you know, they had one bite and people just lined up for it. The next day he walks out and they had 12 palms filled, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for him to make dulce de palma frias, you know? <laughs> it was little moments like that that allowed him to escape to a place mentally 
to kind of survive that. And it's funny because years later in Miami, he met uh, a man who was with him in that concentration group at, who then owned a restaurant. But uh, as long as that guy was alive, he said, as long as I'm alive, you you eat for free at my restaurant. He remembered that, he recalled that, and, and he appreciated it. And that that, to this day, I think about that. And it's like, you know, you made food helped you make that little bit of a difference for yourself and for and for a desperate group of men. Cuban Americans of my generation grew up with these borrowed memories from our parents. It's a standard the, that we bear that no one will ever go back to Cuba, certainly while our parents' generation is alive, but that doesn't mean that there's not an incredible curiosity. In 2006, Fidel Castro handed over power to his brother, Raul. At the time, Carlos was writing for the Palm Beach Post, and they asked him to go to Cuba to cover the story. So the first call I make is to my father, because I feel like I still need his blessing to do that. And I call him up, and we have like this conversation full of pregnant pauses. And when I said, Dad, I'm going to Cuba. He says, take me with you. So it was, it was a blessing from him, you know, to say, I wish I could go with you, but take me there in spirit. I mean, did you sense that he was hesitant? What I sensed, really what I felt when I got back is he was really curious and he was scared for me. He did. He confided in my mom several times that he he was worried that that I would say or do the wrong thing that would get me in trouble with Cuban secret police. And like on my third day in Cuba, like I outed myself as a journalist to someone who was a family friend who turns out to be the wife of the president of the local committee for the defense of the revolution. It's like a community based spy network, you know, where if someone's doing something wrong, if your neighbor is doing something wrong you report them to authorities and the authorities come and knock on your house and say, why are you saying such terrible things about Castro XYZ? And that's how they keep everybody in line. So I went to this family friend and I was telling her I was there as a journalist and she reveals to me that like her house is the neighborhood CDR headquarters. But and, because and, of her- And what were you thinking at that moment? I was like, I'm toast. I was like, oh, three days in Cuba. That's, a, that's, that's as long as I made it before I ended up in a Cuban prison. Right. <laughs> And, uh, and she said because of her allegiance to my family that she wouldn't say anything. And, and but I felt her tense up and I like, I didn't last more than like another half hour at her house. And I was like, well, I gotta go. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I really did get a chance to feel the pressures that average Cubans live with every day, even in the so-called more forward thinking Cuba. And one of those pressures is around food. In the early days of the Castro regime, the government started a system of food rationing that continues today. You get a booklet of coupons that you can exchange for basic staples like rice and beans, meat and oil. Most Cuban families rely on these rations to survive, but the country is plagued by food shortages, and sometimes it's not enough. Seeing this up close, Carlos was confronted with the difference between his life growing up in South Florida and the world of modern-day Cubans. He always saw himself as Cuban, but the food wasn't any Cuban food that I'd grown up eating. I went into a, one of the restaurants that's open to tourists because a lot of the restaurants aren't open to Cuban nationals. Uh, if you live there, it's not open to you. It's only for tourists, which is bizarre. 
And and That's I asked, a, I mean, they're, they're, it seems it seems like in a lot of ways they're like putting up a front. Oh, for for the outsiders who come. Absolutely, it's a facade. It's a it's a it's a it's a Hollywood movie set, right? In a lot of ways. And um and I asked for a Cuban sandwich, and they looked at me like I had two heads. And so a lot of these dishes, like they would have steak on the menu, but it wasn't a palomilla steak, which is what we know here. And they didn't have vaca frita because beef is. Beef is actually reserved only for tourists in Cuba, or it was at the time when I went. Like, if you were a Cuban national, for you to have beef and have it not be illegal, you had to have a prescription from your doctor that said that you had a protein deficiency and you needed beef. How do I know that? I have a cousin who's a Cuban doctor. And he's like, I remember writing scripts for my mother so that she's, you know, this frail little bird of a woman so that she could have some meat protein. They lost access to certain important ingredients. Like you, maybe you couldn't get fresh garlic. Maybe you couldn't get cumin. And it's like, you've just eliminated two of the most basic things in Cuban cuisine. So you know what I saw a lot of? A lot of pizza. And yet, and yet, people find ways, like the best meals that I ate were cooked in Cuban households. Like friends in the family who'd make like a, this succulent pork chop. They were using oil and using salt and there was lard in it. You know, like they had lard, so they had it nailed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she made beans and rice and the beans were right, you know, and, and you, could, you could feel, oh, it's still here. But you had to go find it in Cuban households and they were making do with what they can with the memory of the cuisine that they remember. Am I correct that the the Cuban food that you find in South Florida today is more similar to the food that your parents grew up eating than the food that they have in Cuba today? Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I think if my I think if my parents went to went to Cuba today to a restaurant in Cuba, they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily recognize it. The reason that Cuban food in Miami looks the way it does is because of that generation of Cubans preserving it, and then handing it down to their kids. But as much as food was always a way of staying connected to Cuba, the cuisine of South Florida has evolved. Cuban-American chefs have put their own spin on their grandparents' food, pulling from a range of influences. As for Fernando? I think about it now. Um, My dad came over at age 42, so I'll be 42 in a couple of months. And he's now, uh, he's turning 90 this year. So I joke with him that he's more American than he is Cuban now. He's lived here in this country longer than he was in Cuba. What does he say to that when you make that joke? Uh, he just laughs and he has to like recognize that, that yeah, that, he's, that he has a stake in being American. That was me and Carlos in Miami back in 2017. We kept in touch after that visit, and I continued to follow his writing about the Miami food scene. Then, just before the start of the pandemic, I saw a tweet from Carlos sharing the news of his father's murder. I wanted to talk to Carlos again, first to see how he was doing after what happened. But also, when we talked that first time, my focus was on Fernando's life in Cuba. He never talked about his life in Florida, which, as Carlos pointed out, was actually where he spent most of his life. We'll share that conversation when we come back. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. 
Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep tooth sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week was the third and final episode of our series, By Us, For Everyone, about the past, present, and future of black food media. In last week's episode, I speak with Stephen Satterfield. You may know him as the host of Netflix's High on the Hog, but he's also one of the only black food magazine publishers in the country. His company, Whetstone Media, tells stories about how food and people are connected to the land they came from. The first few years of Whetstone, he received a lot of praise for his work. But that praise didn't necessarily translate into the funding he needed to grow. If you want the work that I'm making to have a place in the world, that lip service isn't actually going to cover it. The only thing that I'm asking for is, can y'all help keep the lights on? Can you put some in the collection tray? And then when people don't do that, but then they want to say, oh, your work is amazing. No, that is enraging to me. Stephen and I talk about his early days as a sommelier, how he finally got his first million-dollar investment, and his latest challenge, leading from a place of success. That episode's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to the show. Fernando Frias never did go back to Cuba, but he was always trying to reconnect with it in America. Fernando came to Florida the day after his 42nd birthday in 1969. He lived in Hialeah, near Miami. His future wife, Iradia, was also a Cuban exile. They met while she was shopping for a fridge. He was the salesman. She bought the fridge. And two months later, they were married and in business together. At first, they bought ice cream trucks, selling frozen treats in their neighborhood. After a few years, they sold the trucks and opened a jewelry store. As a kid, Carlos often hung out there. Remember the cooking skills his father picked up running those cafes in Havana, then honed in the labor camp? They came in handy. I always say that I was raised by a man in an apron. Because my dad and my mom worked at this little mom and pop jewelry store in a city called Carroll City. And he would work the front of the counter in his like a suit jacket and a tie every day. But at midday, he would put an apron on over his suit and he'd go into the back of the store where they had a little four burner stove and he would cook, cook food that he learned to cook, you know, when he was in prison, you know, really flavorful food. Like my dad was not easy on the spices and like a lot of salt and oil right. <laughs> and uh, and lots of cumin and everything. He really loved to taste everything in his food. He loved to like feel the life in it. You know what I mean? Growing up, Carlos learned about his parents' lives in Cuba. His father surviving the labor camps, his mother leaving on a freedom flight in her 30s. But when he stepped outside of his house, he was in Broward County, a calm, quiet neighborhood that was also very white. His mom's cousin had found a good deal on a house, and Fernando took it and moved in. But Miami's Little Havana, the center of the Cuban diaspora, was 20 miles away. It felt like another world, a world Fernando always wanted to be a part of. Three times a week, four times a week, we drive into Miami to visit his mom, my grandmother, and all my cousins, you know, the 15 cousins and, you know, nine aunts and uncles, we'd all meet there, you know, uh, every weekend and a couple times throughout the week. So it was like a little bit louder. It was like this tactile excitement. And what's funny is that he had always wanted to live in the center of Cubanness. He wanted to live in, in the city of Miami. Fernando's desire to live in the center of Cubanness rubbed off on Carlos. After college, he started writing for newspapers, first in Cincinnati, then Atlanta, then Palm Beach, an hour north of Miami. He felt like he was slowly making his way home. Finally, he got a job at the Miami Herald food section and moved into a neighborhood called Flagami. 
So it's this kind of real central old Miami neighborhood. My neighbor is from Venezuela. She's lived here 30 plus years. My neighbor across the street is Cuban and she may or may not partake in Santeria. So it's like this neighborhood that's really uh, well-established and feels very, um, it's just very authentic. And so when you first moved in there, how did that feel? Oh my God, it felt like home. It felt like uh, like the place where I had wanted to live my entire life. And it was just like this kind of buzz that still living here, just going on seven years, um, still I have not gotten bored with. Carlos's father stayed in the suburban house Carlos grew up in, but he continued to make regular trips into the city. He and Carlos would meet up sometimes just for coffee, sometimes for much bigger events, like when Fidel Castro died in 2016 and Cuban-Americans poured into the streets to celebrate. Fernando was there in the middle of it all, dancing. In 2019, Carlos's mother died suddenly. She had been dealing with health issues for a few years, but one day she became unresponsive and needed emergency surgery. She never fully recovered and died a month later. My dad says, I really don't want to live alone. Would it be okay if I live with you? And my heart like leapt because... I'd wanted nothing more over the years. As my parents got older, I wanted them to move closer to me, to Miami. He moved in with me in, uh, in November, and I begin to get to show him the Miami that he had always wanted to live in. So there's this strangeness and kind of showing something new to your dad. So here I am taking him to Cafe La Trova, which is like an uh, old Cuban-themed bar and restaurant, and watching him sing along to these old Cuban songs, drinking cocktails, you know, in this very Miami vibe and taking him to my local bar to have a beer, uh, taking him to the local wine shop that plays loud music and serves tapas and really get this incredible Miami experience. Back in 2006, when Carlos went on his reporting trip to Cuba, his dad told him, take me with you. He meant take me with you in spirit. But now, in a way... Carlos could take his father with him to the center of the Cuban diaspora in Miami. In January, we have an annual parade down Calle Ocho, La Parada de los Reyes Magos. It's the, the parade of the three kings. And it becomes an event, like the place gets full. And my dad says, I'd really love to go to this. I've never been to this. And I was like, Dad, Calle Ocho, it's such a nightmare. It's, it's such a... It's going to be a mess, you know? Like, like so crowded, that. you mean? Like, you're not, yeah. not going to the park, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. Like, yeah, going to be madhouse. tripping over people. He's 92 years old. And he's like, ah, it's okay. I understand. I understand. And later I felt bad. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let get in the car. And he's like, no, nah, if it's too much trouble, no, nah, no, nah, it's not going to be any trouble. And I drive down there and I drop him off as close as I can. I park, make my way through the crowd. And there he is watching the parade with his cigar in his hand and his big hat. And he's next, standing next to Domino Park, which is this park for those who are 55 and older. And a little old lady who's playing at the park points to my dad and says, come on, we need, we need four. You guys come play with us. And she turns to me and she goes, it's only 55 and over, but you know, we'll let, we'll let you in so you can play. (laughs) (laughs) So I sit down there and I play dominoes with my dad and these two old folks. And we have a great time. And I was so glad that, that I, that I had done that with him, especially looking back, you know, giving him something that he really wanted to do. And and frankly, we ended up having one of the most memorable times that we've had together. 
In my entire life, I'd never been closer to my dad. He got to be around, you know, his granddaughters, you know, my daughters who who lived here and he had his own room in my house and to wake up in the morning and see him and make coffee for both of us, you know, stir together some sweet Cuban coffee and just sit next to each other and sip and look out the window and sit in the yard and talk about life and being able to introduce him to the Miami he'd always kind of aspired to live in. I mean, it was really one of the greatest moments in our relationship. Was he still cooking at all when he was living with you? Uh, we were kind of like cooking together. You know, uh, although I do remember at least once he came home and he'd kind of dug through, you know, the cans and fresh food and and he'd started like a big stew, which is the thing that he always made at home. Like, And that made it feel great that you had created a place that that both you and your dad could feel at home. It was, uh, it was really special. Did he ever make you dulce de palmas frias? You know, my one regret is we never we never got around to making that together. But it's one of those things that kind of that I have in the back of my mind, like this is a thing that I should make at some point in my lifetime. Although part of me feels like the, the moment has been lost, you know, to do something like that together. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I want to talk about your father's murder. And I just want to say, like, you can go into as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable with. No, I understand. So it's really up to you how much we want to spend talking about it. Of course. So the interesting, the interesting thing about moving my dad moving in with me is that he maintained his other house and we had planned to sell it. So he was reticent to leave because he had filled the yard with fruit trees. So he would go up there and he would pick the fruits and he would distribute them to the neighborhood. And it wasn't uncommon for him to go up to the house and spend the night there and then come the next day. So he went up there on a Saturday and I didn't hear from him that he was spending the night, which was odd, but not totally unusual. And by evening time the next day, when I still hadn't heard from him, um, it felt like something was wrong. I asked my brother who lived 10 minutes from him um, if he would go and, and check in on him. My brother called me and he says, I'm here and dad's not coming to the door. Uh, I'm going to use my key to come in. And I hear him open the door and just and just say something like, my God, my God, this is not okay. This isn't okay. Uh, uh, call the police. He'd found my dad. Uh, he'd found my dad dead, uh, shot to death right at the door. Um, and I live with knowing that, um, that my brother had to see that, you know, and um, I wish that there was a way to have avoided that happening. Um, because I think he's very haunted by it. The police said that Fernando had gone to a neighbor's house, a young guy he knew, who helped him with yard work sometimes. Between police reports and evaluations after the fact, Carlos says it appears this young man was having some kind of a psychotic episode. There's not much of an explanation beyond that. Fernando just happened to show up at the wrong moment. You know, that, uh, that guy, had a, guy had a handgun, had like a Glock, and for some reason that we still don't know the answer answer to he, he shot my dad to death <sighs> well i mean i'm really sorry first of all i mean just awful um i appreciate it dan i mean i it must also though sometimes just i would imagine just i would be so angry it's like this weird thing to have a parent getting murdered at age 92 of course it's always going to be 
painful and sad to lose a parent no matter what. You would imagine them declining slowly in health and gathering gathering around the hospital bed or the bed at some point, the whole family. Like that's the picture you have in your head. Yeah. Um I would just be so angry if it happened like this. You know where I've found that I have the most anger? And maybe it's wanting to find something to 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 sharpen that focus. Uh, that's gun laws. We should have stronger gun laws in this country. We should have gun laws so that everybody doesn't have a gun. You know, frankly, I don't think that everybody in this country should have a gun. Two weeks after the family buried Fernando in March 2020, the entire country went into lockdown. Carlos couldn't process this tragedy and the shock of COVID all at the same time. For months, he says, he was in a fog. He was in the center of Miami's Cuban community. But for the first time, his dad wasn't there. Carlos began going through old photos of his father. He came across one from around 1957. Fernando's at one of the cafes he owned in Havana, standing behind the counter, drinking a coffee. There are waitresses on either side of him and a few customers in front of the counter, well-dressed young men hanging out smoking cigarettes. It seems clear this was a gathering place. The photo reminded Carlos of Miami's Ventanitas. Ventanita means little window in Spanish. They're takeout windows attached to cafes and restaurants where you can order coffee to go from the sidewalk. So you'd have these little stands, these little counters where you're handing out coffee and people gather at the counter and they buy a cigar. They buy a little snack, a pastelito, a croqueta, and that little shot of Cuban coffee. And that little counter is the place where people gathered and caught up with each other. It's where they talk politics. It became this um, little town square. The fact that my dad had been a cafe owner, it I connected those things somehow subconsciously. You know, it became a way to like learn more about my dad and learn more about this thing that was central to our culture. Carlos decided to research the history of these Ventanitas and write a story about it for the Herald. Looking back, he says it was a way for him to connect with his father. These ventanitas are a hallmark of Cuban culture in Miami, a culture Carlos always associated with his father. But Carlos didn't know much about their origins. These ventanitas, you don't find them in New Jersey, where there's a large Cuban population. You don't find them in Chicago. You don't find them in Los Angeles. And you didn't find them in Cuba. So I started wondering, why did the ventanita happen in Miami? In the early 1960s, Miami was changing in two big ways. One was that hundreds of thousands of Cubans were arriving, and the other was air conditioning. The window unit AC had just been invented, and in Miami, it quickly went from a luxury to a necessity. Now, if you've ever been to Miami in summer, it's unlivable. Like, unless you're indoors with air conditioning blowing your face, it can be unlivable. Before AC, Miami's Cuban restaurants were mostly open to the street. No windows, no doors. At the end of the night, they just pulled down a shade. That meant tables spilled out onto the sidewalk. People walking by would stop to see friends. It was the heart of the community. When AC came along, the restaurants installed windows. Suddenly, all the customers were inside. People weren't seeing each other and gathering outside. A piece of Miami Cuban culture was in danger of disappearing. The question was, how do we keep our guests cool and comfortable, but still be able to keep Cuban coffee culture, the little meeting around the counter? 
As Carlos learned, many of these restaurant owners brought this question to Felipe Valls. He owned a couple of manufacturing businesses in Santiago, Cuba, then sold restaurant appliances in Miami. And one of his best-selling items was espresso machines, because every Cuban cafe and restaurant had to have an espresso machine. Felipe had an idea. This is Felipe Valls in a video for the Miami Herald from last year, explaining how he would cut out a window in the restaurant facing outward, install a counter, just like that, create a coffee takeout section for a restaurant. Now, today it doesn't seem like anything special, but during a time when whole stores didn't even have a front, you know, they were open, (laughs) it was like, it was mind-blowing. So the guy starts installing these windows all over Miami. One of his first customers was the grocery store El Oso Blanco, a hangout for Cuban immigrants in what would soon be Little Havana. Another customer was Badia's, a popular sandwich shop on 8th Street. Felipe was installing that ventanita just as 8th Street was being renamed Calle Ocho. Pretty soon, Felipe says to himself, why am I just working for all these restaurants? Why don't I own some restaurants myself? I would say he's probably the most important restaurant figure in Miami, the guy that went on to open Versailles Cuban restaurant, quite possibly the most famous Cuban restaurant outside of Cuba. Felipe eventually opened more than 40 restaurants. And by the 1970s, his restaurants and Miami's Ventanitas were at the heart of Cuban culture there. For Carlos, talking with the city's restaurant and cafe owners for his story made him feel closer to his father, who owned his own coffee shop for two decades in Cuba. Learning more about the Ventanita culture and that kind of let me kind of explore a little bit what his life must have been like those 20 years, you know? Um, And I kind of needed that. Um, I I don't think I I realized until I was done how much it helped me get through that period. When I was writing that story and I had to refer back to what the Cuban counters looked like in Cuba, I was able to kind of look at this iconic photo of my dad And it was those little tidbits, you know, little pieces that he had taught me over the years that I had learned from him and from his experiences over the years that I was able to weave in and I think gave that story its heart and its purpose. And when I got to the other side of it and saw those things and talked to all the people who were connected to it, it made me feel like it was kind of this tribute to the people that had helped make Miami into what it is. And the knowledge that my dad was one of those folks. That's Carlos Frias, food editor at the Miami Herald. In 2008, he wrote a memoir about his travels to Cuba called Take Me With You. You can also check out his podcast, La Ventanita. And just a few weeks ago, he won his second James Beard Award for his writing in the Herald. He used his acceptance speech to talk about his father's murder and to call for stronger gun laws in the wake of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Reminder that tickets are on sale now for our live taping at the Bell House in Brooklyn on July 20th. Get yours at sporkful.com slash live. Next week on the show for 4th of July, a history of American barbecue. I'll talk with culinary historian Michael Twitty about the origins of barbecue from West Africa to the American South. Then I'll look at a very specific barbecue tradition in an unlikely place, the south side of Chicago. That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out our recent series, By Us, For Everyone, about the past, present, and future of black food media. 
Get those episodes wherever you got this one. The Sporkful is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by Kimmy Gregory. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producer is Eric Eddings. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Harris Coralou in Miami, Florida, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better.